This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to our program today. I'm Joel Hilliker. We're going to start today in South America, where two big stories are unfolding, one in Venezuela, the other in Brazil. In both of these countries, just to America's south, there's a lot of evidence that elections have been stolen and that the forces of the left are winning and leftists in America and elsewhere are helping them. We're going to get up to speed with both of these situations in a conversation with trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. Then we'll look at a really disturbing trend in Canada, which is ramping up a devastating euthanasia program. In just the last few years, the number of people being given what they call medical assistance in dying has been skyrocketing. More people are being put to death by doctors than are dying of diabetes or the flu. We'll have a conversation with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about this. In our third segment, we'll talk about testosterone. This is the hormone that men produce a whole lot more of than women do, and it produces a lot of differences in strength and stamina, even thought and behavior. The trouble is, men aren't producing nearly as much tea as our fathers did or our grandfathers before them. What causes low tea, and how can we correct this naturally? We'll talk to holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian to get some answers. And our last word today is about setting goals in your life that will lead to your personal growth. Now let's begin in Venezuela to talk about this we have from our office in Britain, Mihailo Zekic. Hello there. Hello. So we have a lot to talk about here. Start with the situation in Venezuela. If you could explain what's going on there for us, you have a president and an acting president. Explain what just happened. Well, actually, you had a president and a former acting president, but <laughs> now uh, that is no longer the case. Um, as some of our longtime listeners or readers on the trumpet.com may know, the situation in Venezuela is a bit tenuous. You have the dictator there, Nicolas Maduro. He's been in power since 2013. He's turned Venezuela into a failed state just by government figures alone. Uh, the government estimates over 7 million people have fled the country as refugees. Economies collapsed. Um, there's a lot of organized crime. And... All of this is in the context of Maduro. He's a socialist. He is a dictator, but he's claiming to operate under the Republican banner. And the opposition-controlled uh, legislature appointed itself uh, as an alternate uh, government or an acting government in 2019. Now, this alternate government didn't really have much political power. Maduro still controlled uh, most of the government apparatuses in the country. But it did receive a lot of foreign support uh, from countries in the West like the United States, like a lot of European countries, etc. And this led the uh, the president of the National Assembly, Juan Guaido, who was named the interim president by the opposition, um, as the officially recognized president of Venezuela in the West. Now, again, he had whole, held little political power on the ground, but a lot of Venezuelans looked to him for hope. And because of his international status, he was also given access to some of Venezuela's offshore holdings in places like the United States. This um, standoff, shall we say, between Guaido and Maduro has been going on for a few years now. Guaido hasn't been able to do much. He's lost support uh, among Venezuelans themselves. And as of last year, he's lost support with his Western backers as well. Um, a few months ago, the United States started negotiating normalization with the Maduro regime. 
and uh, they actually came to a deal in November uh, through talks in Mexico City between the government and the opposition to unfreeze some of those um, offshore holdings, which includes billions of dollars worth of material to be managed by the UN. But in doing so, the United States was basically saying it can recognize the Maduro government as legitimate. Up until this point, Maduro was seen as an illegitimate figure, but now the United States is confirming that they accept him in some sort of official capacity. And all they get in return is the promise of continued talks with the opposition. Maduro's been in power for almost 10 years. He's let Venezuela crumble. He's basically done—he doesn't even rely on his own security forces. He relies on Cuban security forces to protect him. He's not doing anything that's going to seriously challenge his power. So, and the opposition knows this, but they don't really have many other options at this point, so they just went ahead with that. And in uh, December, on December 30th, the they saw the writing was on the wall, and the opposition voted to dissolve the interim government and strip Guaido of his title as acting president. So at this point, there isn't even an interim government anymore. The best the opposition can do is just play along with the talks with Maduro and hope that some sort of concessions gives him some sort of upper hand in the future. So uh, Maduro seems to be uh, his his power is really entrenched. And to what degree would you say it's because the uh, American administration has uh, given him the support and kind of dashed the hopes of the opposition to uh, mount any kind of resistance to his his power? Well, it is a little bit early to tell. Maduro is one of those figures that is uh, full of surprises. I don't think anybody expected him to last this long with uh, uh, the situation in Venezuela. But again, you have over 7 million refugees fleeing the country. It's commonplace now for former doctors and uh, other higher income people to now be involved in things like the drug trade or prostitution. Um, the economy has really collapsed. And the only reason Maduro is able to stay in power is because of his foreign support from countries like Cuba, who wants to export socialism, Iran, who sees a fellow American enemy and is doing business with them, or with the Venezuelan regime. And so, again, Maybe Maduro would have been able to cl cling on a little bit longer and see Venezuela crumble even more. But, I mean, w when push comes to shove, everybody in Venezuela knows Maduro is the main problem that they're having with the economy and everything else. And it's Latin America. It's not like coups aren't uh, that uh, uncommon in that part of the world. So in time, um, as Maduro's grip on the country uh, grows smaller and smaller, he could have definitely uh, left power. But with the actions with the United States, with the actions of the opposition, um, it's pretty clear that the West and its allies within Venezuela see that uh, it's now time to move on. And it's slowly but surely at this point, it isn't complete a, a complete rapprochement at this point, like say what happened with Cuba. But if the America goes down the way it is going at this point with uh, bringing in normalization, we can't expect the situation for Maduro's government international legitimacy, economic uh, aid, whatnot, to increase steadily. And uh, we could actually see Maduro stay in power for a lot longer than uh, than would have been. It's, it's kind of remarkable how uh, the United States seems to be coming down on the wrong side of these kinds of situations where you have a popular uprising, you have people who are resisting uh, the powers that be, that clearly are on the side of... Uh, a lack of freedom, even tyranny, uh, and they're receiving this kind of support from the United States such that uh, these popular 
movements aren't able to to get any real traction. Uh, we have a similar kind of situation in some ways, or at least there are some echoes of what happened in Venezuela. Now in Brazil, and really dramatic developments there just in the last couple of days. Can you explain that to us? Well, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar, if they've seen the headlines of any major paper around the world uh, on this Sunday, on the 8th of January, there was a huge riot in Brasilia, Brazil's capital, where thousands of protesters stormed the Congress building, the presidential palace, the Supreme Court, in the in the name of protesting an election. Uh, a lot of people are making comparisons with uh, the January 6th riots from a few years back in the States, and they're actually there are quite a few similarities with that. Brazil from 2019 to until the end of last year was run by a, cons- a populist conservative named Jair Bolsonaro. Um, the Financial Times once called him the tropical Trump, and that's actually a pretty good uh, comparison. He was, uh, his wife's an evangelical. He has a huge uh, base among the evangelicals. He uh, lacks gun control. He opened up the Amazon rainforest for private development. And now with this last election, they had uh, in Brazil their presidential election on October 30th, and his main opponent was uh, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who uh, was president from 2003 to 2010. Da Silva is a very interesting figure. He uh, is a socialist, a former union leader. He actually got into politics from prodding from late Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. And when he was in charge of Brazil, he took the country in a very anti-American direction. He brought himself closer to Russia and China. It was under him that the BRICS bloc was formed with Russia, China, India, South Africa, and Brazil. And he, uh, him and his people have controlled a lot of what goes on in, the Bra- in Brazilian politics even after he left office. His successor was his chief of staff, Dilma Rousseff. Um, now, Da Silva was uh, arrest, uh, or incarcerated in 2018 in what the Wall Street Journal called Brazil's biggest corruption uh, scandal ever, which, considering Latin America is pretty infamous for uh, <laughs> different levels of corruption, that's saying something. Uh, convicted felon, but he was uh, pardoned by the Supreme Court the following year. And since then, uh, he's won, he ran again for president. He, according to official results, beat Bolsonaro. And a lot of Bolsonaro supporters, like Donald Trump supporters in the United States, are uh, saying that there was election fraud, that uh, um, specifically Bolsonaro targets the voting machines, like that there are problems with voting machines. And if you look at the actual election results from October, it was a pretty razor-thin victory for uh, Da Silva. He won 50.9% compared to 49.1% for Bolsonaro. Now, I'm not a cybersecurity expert. I don't know the exact details of what went on with the voting machines, but if there are anything like the voting machines used in the American elections where people were saying that they were absolutely secure, there were no problems with them, and turns out there were a host of problems with them, uh, this uh, could mean something for Bolsonaro. In fact, some people did the math, and if the electronic votes were uh, not counted, Bolsonaro would have actually won the election. So a lot of his supporters, millions of Brazilians, or at least he has millions of supporters, and many among them see as the see the election as being stolen, and this culminated in what happened on the eighth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the uh, evidence of that I think seems to be bolstered by the fact that you have so many prominent U.S. politicians who've been so strong in insisting that there was no election fraud in the United States, saying the exact same thing about what happened in Brazil. Even President Obama tweeting, you know, we need to preserve 
Brit- uh, Brazilian democracy, uh, and we can't allow these these people to uh, rise up against the you know the uh, duly constituted government of Brazil. Um, it just adds more evidence to the fact that that's probably exactly what happened. Now, so so what's interesting in both of these countries is you have the forces of the left that are gaining the upper hand. We're looking at these from the standpoint of Bible prophecy. Maybe you can just talk about how what we expect to happen based on biblical prophecy and how what's happening right now may actually uh, lead to the fulfillment of what we would expect there. Well, there's a couple of biblical prophecies that come to mind with this. Um, anytime the trumpet looks at Latin America, a go-to prophecy we uh, use is Deuteronomy 28:52, often, um, which talks about um, Israel, in this case the United States of America, the descendants of the tribe of Manasseh, being besieged in all their gates, uh, so to speak. Now, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Jerry Fleury, has elaborated that this refers to a trade uh, besiegements to America being cut out of foreign trade. And for anybody to do that, they'd have to get control of Latin America. Venezuela sits on the Caribbean Sea. It's uh, right up there, uh, right next to um, where all the where a lot of the major maritime trade routes enter uh, into the Caribbean, the Gulf of Mexico to New Orleans, for example. Brazil is Latin America's largest economy. So seeing these anti-American turns in places like Venezuela or Brazil could certainly help fulfill that prophecy with countries less willing to do business with the United States, more eager to do business with American enemies. But there's another prophecy specifically about radical leftism that we look to often when when talking about the situation in America. We often turn to a prophecy in Second Kings chapter 14, verses 26 to 28, which talks about there being bitter affliction for Israel, with there being no helper. And our editor-in-chief has often pointed to the situation with the radical left, with men like Barack Obama putting implementing in a, uh, anti-American policies, both domestically and abroad, uh, killing the economy, destroying civil liberties, empowering American enemies like Venezuela, and that prophecy specifies that God sent a man by the name of Jeroboam to solve all that, which prophetically Mr. Fleury has pointed to Donald Trump as the fulfillment of that, or in the process of fulfilling that. And it's interesting, because Bolsonaro, uh, once he, uh, uh, a few days before the Silva's term began, he actually fled to Florida, where supposedly he'll be living for a few months. Um, And considering that's where Donald Trump fled to after uh, he was, or I shouldn't say fled, but that's where he's staying uh, after he uh, left the White House. I can't, and they were both, Trump and Bolsonaro were pretty close with each other while they were both in office to the point where Trump even asked if Brazil under Bolsonaro could even join NATO. So they're pretty close allies with each other and they're dealing with similar problems. They have similar connections. This may end up actually be playing in Mr. Trump's favor if he ends up getting an ally in Bolsonaro in Another country that's dealing with a radical leftist takeover, and who knows, this might actually start turning the tide in the radical left's uh, control of America, and who knows, maybe even Brazil. Now, if Bolsonaro somehow gets back into Brasilia, or if the Silva ends up uh, not being president anymore, that doesn't necessarily mean Brazil is going to be uh, uh, America's best friend. Um, as our editor-in-chief has uh, often uh, mentioned, we expect Latin America to America to politically align itself with a united Europe against the United States, um, part of that besiegement in Deuteronomy 28. Bolsonaro, he has a huge base among the evangelicals, but he's still a Catholic, and uh, we expect the Catholic Church to get involved both in Latin America and in Europe, putting these 
blocks together. And there are quite a few right-wing governments in Europe right now, like in Italy and Hungary, that uh, that would be willing to work with them. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban is already also pretty close with Bolsonaro, and we expect Orban to be one of the men in charge of this uh, new Europe coming on. So it doesn't necessarily mean that all's going to be good if it turns out Da Silva did steal the election and he's out of office. But in the short term, at least, perhaps we could see some interesting parallels between America being saved by the hands of Jeroboam, as it says in Second Kings, and perhaps something similar happening in Brazil. Well, very good. We've been talking with Trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic about political turmoil in Venezuela and Brazil and where biblical prophecy tells us these may lead. We have quite a lot of coverage about these nations on our website, and we'll link to several articles in our show notes about this. We're also working on an article for the coming Trumpet print edition on this. You can watch for that. Thanks so much for your time, Mihailo. Thank you. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Canada is killing its own citizens, a lot of its own citizens. In 2021 alone, it killed over 10,000 people. What's going on here? It's a practice that Canada is ramping up called medical assistance in dying or euthanasia. And it's deeply alarming. To talk about this, we have via our office in Britain, trumpet writer Richard Palmer. Hello. Good afternoon. So give us the facts about how common this is becoming in Canada. Yeah, this is something that is really ramping up. I think it's the graphs were one of the first things that that grabbed my attention, where this medical assistance and dying euthanasia, it was uh, legalized, I think it was in 2016. Um, and it was about a thousand people a year. And it just, uh, you know, by 2019, you know, the next year it more than doubled. By 2019, it was well over 5,000. Uh, this year, it's or the, this oh, sorry, 2021, 10,000. Who knows where it was last year, 2022? Maybe nearer 20,000. If it was near 20,000, then about as many people will have died of this program than have died of COVID or with COVID uh, in Canada. So this is something. You know, it's become the seventh leading cause of death. At least trying to put a statistics from different years together there. Uh, but that shows you just how common this is becoming. It kind of reminds me of you, know, you have abortion introduced with people like Hillary Clinton saying it needs to be safe, legal and rare mm -hmm. and then starts to become uh, disturbingly common. I mean, any amount is disturbing, but very common. Yeah. So what is the rationale that people are using to to push this? How much is, uh, say, financial considerations uh, or other considerations factoring in? Well, no one, I don't think, is using financial considerations to push this. You know, the financial considerations are the dark underbelly that they don't really want to talk about. Uh, but it's being pushed as a, as a compassionate thing. Yeah. You know, you've got, you've got somebody that's in a lot of pain, that they're in a lot of suffering. Uh, when this was initially introduced, this was introduced only for those who were going to die, whose death was reasonably foreseeable, was the term used. Uh, so... Uh, you know, people who are terminally sick. That was that was loosened a few years in, uh, but still it's being pushed as well. This is for people that are that are in extreme pain. The financial considerations, yeah, is the is the is 
what's maybe less publicly discussed, but the Canadian Medically, Medical Association Journal in 2017 had an article that said that uh, this program potentially could save the Canadian healthcare system uh, up to $135 million a year. You think about potentially things like pensions and, and some of those other issues, mm. the amount of money that it would be saving the ca total Canadian state would be even higher. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's, there, are, there are horrific stories of people being forced or pushed hard in this direction with money uh, you kind of dangled over them with basically being offered the option of we'll bankrupt you or you can live in poverty or you can live in a care home that has had human waste found all over it that's in an absolutely disgusting condition uh, or we'd be very happy for you to help you end it all. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, yeah, you know, those those financial considerations absolutely, I think, are a part of it. Well, you uh, wrote a trumpet brief about this earlier in the week. You actually had a statistic in here about how many of the people who are choosing this option are using the money that will be saved to their family, the financial hardship that is being uh, put on their own family as the reason why they choose to go ahead and do it. Right, 30, 36%, about uh, just over a third, say, yes, they fear that they were a burden on family, friends, or caregivers as to as to why they were doing this. I think the one of the stats that really got me is about 20% say that the reason they want to end their life is because of isolation or loneliness. Hmm. Um, and it's just, uh, as a society, where it's kind of like, well, we, we can't help people in that way. We've got all these lonely, isolated people, but well, then we'll help them die because they feel lonely. Hmm. I mean, what a horrible position to hmm. be in. Well, it is interesting, the the combination of factors that are kind of creating this perfect storm where there's this kind of appetite for uh, for such a procedure where you have high medical costs, uh, a lot a lot of people who are putting more and more faith in a medical system and particularly in a socialized medicine nation like Canada, where, you know, you're you're you go to the hospital. It's part of the what the government provides for you, uh, the increasing costs of that medical care and. Then other social factors, like you're talking about just us isolating the elderly, uh, putting people in homes. There's not the family support that there would have been maybe in uh, past generations or what would be in ideal situations. A higher degree of the population or a greater percentage that's uh, in that kind of a situation. Fracturing families that are isolating people in that way. There are a lot of things that you can see where uh, the the, the need for this or the desire for something like this increases to the point where once the government says, hey, we're going to make this an option, more and more people are willing to take it. Right. Yeah, it's an indictment on um, on our whole society. But I think one of the most disturbing factors of this is the number that are maybe not willing to take it and then being pushed in this direction or not initially wanting to take this. Mm. Uh, that are pushed in this direction by the Canadian healthcare system. I think one of the most shocking quotes for me working on this came from uh, Tim Stanton. He's the director of the Canadian Institute for Inclusion and Citizenship. And he said that their system in Canada is probably the biggest existential threat to disabled people since the Nazis' program in Germany in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. and, and what I mean, what prompted this article is just you know, in putting together daily news reports and, in, and looking at the news, it felt like every week, every few days, we were getting more horrific stories out of Canada where with this program, they're making it very easy to die so that people who are maybe suffering with depression and have a bad day 
can um, you know, opt into this potentially without their family knowing or people even being forced into this. There was one individual who uh, who who chose to you know, to have the government help kill himself like this. And uh, well, first of all, you know, his complaint that was listed on the reason why was hearing loss. You know, this was not um, you know, cancer sickness. or something like yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, here and he was kind of he had some issues with depression, and I guess you know he had a bad day. But what's most disturbing about this is his his family wasn't consulted. Mm. You know, his wife, his, his they weren't informed. I mean, I don't know how it all played out, but I mean, did his wife show up to hospital one day and they're told, "Oh, sorry, we killed your husband." Like, yeah, it is Like, it is. It, it's easier. It, why is choosing to kill yourself? easier than canceling an email newsletter subscription <laughs> i mean it, 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 it's it's incredible and then it gets even worse i think there was there was uh, one individual who gave testimony to canada's parliament uh, about this it was as you can imagine just a very impassioned uh, testimony this man's name was roger foley he said i have been co coerced into assisted death by abuse neglect lack of care and threats uh he talked about one time where the hospital ethicist you know, this is the person in charge of upholding high moral standards in this healthcare system. The hospital ethicists and nurses were trying to coerce me into an assisted death by threatening to charge me $1,800 per day or force just charge me without the care I needed to live. Mm. Uh, and then when he refused, when he said, well, no, I'm, I I'm not going to kill myself. Well, then they stopped feeding him. They stopped giving him water for 20 days. And you know, he was standing up there in front of these lawmakers and he said, you have turned your back on the disabled and elderly Canadians. Uh, so, yeah, no, it maybe sounds like you've got some of these pure, well, yeah, we want to help stop people suffering. And it started to become mm. a system that takes advantage of, of, of people who are depressive, takes advantage of, you know, there was a veteran who had PTSD who called up to try and get some help with that. And instead of kind of getting the counseling or therapy he thought he was going to get, he was kind of told, oh, good news. They've changed the rules. We can help you die now. Um, you know, it's a system that is, that is that is pushing people actively in some circumstances towards this. I I think it's uh, remarkable to think about the perverse incentive that the government would have, uh, financial incentive alone. But um, so you certainly have some in the medical community and the authorities. You have politicians who are incentivized to do this and are pushing it. What do everyday Canadians think of this? Yeah. I mean, some, in some ways, this is the most surprising. Like, they're in favor. This is something that was imposed by the courts. You know, they've, they've somehow found in, you know, in Canada's constitution, in, in a right to liberty and life and this kind of thing, they have somehow found that this includes a fundamental right to, to have doctors help you kill yourself. Uh, I'm not educated enough in the law to understand how you get that from, from Canada's constitution. So it's been pushed by the courts, but this is not something where an unwilling population has kind of been dragged along. So there've been some some pretty. You know, this is over the summer. An Ipso poll of three thousand five hundred Canadians. They found that eighty six percent approved euthanasia being legal. Eighty two percent supported the loosening of the law, the relaxing of the law, so that those without fatal illness can choose to die. The law is going to be shortly changed, where uh, people can choose to die because of mental illness. This is shocking to me. That both they're going to allow um, mature minors, so called. So that probably means people twelve and over. Uh, and um, you know, people with mental problems and people to, with, to, to decide they want to die. So you could genuinely, as a teen, call up your doctor and say, hey, I'm depressed, and have the doctor say, well, have you considered suicide? Mm. Uh, but in terms of 
supporting this, extending this so to to people with teens, 51%, 51% in favor, 23 opposing. And it's not just Paul saying this. You have this channel uh, chain of clothing stores. I think they're mostly in Quebec. Um, but they produce an ad, this three-minute long ad feature celebrating the beauty in death, all focusing on this individual who chose to kill herself. And subsequent your press news and things like that has shown that this individual chose to, to kill herself because she couldn't, she was struggling so much to get healthcare that uh, she was struggling to get anyone, you know, anyone to look after. She had a particularly you know, tough condition to look after. She couldn't deal with it. Uh, and she just found it was so much easier and efficient to get the healthcare system to kill her than it was to get the healthcare system to help her stay alive. Um, but a clothing company built an ad around this. They thought, Oh, I know what will help our sales hmm. An ad about euthanasia. Uh, so it, it seems like there's just a shocking level of acceptance and even support of this. In your article about this, you talked about this being really a spectacular example of the problems, the troubles that emerge when we reject biblical morality. When we do just whatever seems right in our own eyes, we can easily justify something as heinous as murder. Right. I mean, I can understand those arguments that says... Well, yeah, we don't want someone to suffer if somebody's in incredible pain. We can kind of argue, okay, well, yeah, maybe it would be more merciful to help them end it. And and I think it's easy to have a lot of sympathy for somebody who is in the position where they're they're just suffering all the time. But if we start abandoning the, you know, we start using our own standards. Look at where that's gotten Canada. If we start doing just well, okay, yeah, this is what fi- what I figure is the right thing to do. Uh, you've got in this situation where. This is Canada. This is this isn't some third world country. This is a modern, sophisticated, peaceful country that prides itself on you know, inclusion and nonviolence, even inclusion of the disabled, and um, you know all of all of these all of these modern, sophisticated things. And they've ended up with with something that's reminiscent of the Nazis in terms of how it deals with those with disabilities or with the elderly. Uh, once we kind of let go of the firm foundation of the Bible, we really are then on a very slippery slope. Yeah, I, it's uh, interesting to think about the, uh, the the choices that the world offers and that Canada that Canada is offering to people. It's basically, on one hand, you can be euthanized if you're in a, a real dire straits. On the other hand, it's kind of this uh, eternal. Uh, life that is promised by the medical community that you you just end up on life support or pills or surgeries or there's always some other intervention that they're going to promise you uh, to to basically give you the illusion that you can be sustained forever. Um, but it the other point of this that I think is is quite remarkable is just how callous toward life society has become and you see this you you made mention of this in your article uh how you see the same thinking driving the uh, abortion rights movement where they they are demanding the right to kill babies and you end up with a lot of horrifying side effects from that where people are accustomed to accepting uh you know herbert hermit gosnell type nightmare scenarios this is kind of an expression of the sickness uh, that tends to be there when people have rejected biblical morality and the way that god exalts life and accepted a more kind of uh, uh, secular anti-bible view of 
a human life and they they just don't have the moral moorings to be able to navigate these kinds of ethical conundrums that arise um We've been talking with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about Canada's euthanasia program. He wrote a trumpet brief that uh, went out Monday night on this subject. The trumpet brief is our weekly free or daily free email service that keeps you up to date with our articles and analysis. You can go to thetrumpet.com and sign up for that. But do check out Mr. Palmer's article. Uh, The title of this article is Why is Canada Killing Itself? Thanks so much for your time, Mr. Palmer. Thanks for having me. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. What drives the physical engine of a man? Within the body, at the core of the differences between male and female, differences in strength and stamina, even in thought and behavior, is a powerful hormone called testosterone. To talk about this, we have via Skype from his office in British Columbia, holistic nutritionist and personal trainer, Jorg Mardian. Hello there. Hi there. Testosterone. This is this is a, a big subject. This is on a lot of people's minds, I think, because um, there's quite a bit of reportage that testosterone levels aren't what they used to be. Maybe you can uh, tell us why it's important and what's happening. Absolutely. Um, well, both males and females make testosterone. It's just that males, on average, uh, they make about 10 to 20 times that amount. It's just what makes them bigger and stronger and more powerful. Uh, and it also impacts your thoughts and behavior to a lesser degree. And, but it greatly comp- comprises their biological makeup. So what their muscle mass and their bone density and their fat distribution or energy levels. It just testosterone is everything to a man. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so a slow drop in testosterone is just is a normal part of aging. I can look at myself when I was 25. I mean, I was stronger and faster. You know, I'm older now. I don't have the same testosterone levels. Uh, so sometimes that's called andropause or male menopause when it gets too low, right? Um, but apart from this, you know, th- that's that's the normal part of of aging. Just the slow drop, but it shouldn't go too low if we stay healthy. But these. There is something happening in society today or or even over the last hundred years. You know, men have less testosterone today uh, than their counterparts of old. And that decline is is very precipitous already. You know, a Danish study showed that a 14 percent decline uh, back in the 60s compared to the 20s already. The 60s were already 14 percent lower than they were in the 20s. That's according to the study. Hmm. And then you, you go to the 80s. You know, there's another study. And there's lots of studies on this, but, but in the 80s, they showed that a 70-year-old man uh, in 1987 to 89 had an average testosterone level uh, about 100 points higher than a 55-year-old man in 2002 to 2004. Wow. Okay. Now, tell us about the scale that you're talking about. You say 100 points lower. What, on, what, uh, on what scale? How big of a difference is that? Well, anything under 300 nanogram per deciliter... It, it, in how they measure it is is too low. It, it, that means you, you're hitting that andropause or male menopause. It's just too low. There's something wrong with you. Um, so when when they compare men and they say, well, uh, men men on average in in the 80s and you know between the 80s or 2000, 
when they measure the average man there, they say, well, the average man has between 300 and 800, the average, you know, um, middle-aged men. Hmm. Um, but the average middle-aged man back then had 100 points higher. Wow. You know, and, and that's significant, yeah. you know. And today, serum levels in older men are below the normal range for 20% of people in their 60s and close to 50% in their 80s. And so it really shouldn't be like that. There is a cause and effect, which we'll discuss. Now, what's worse? <laughs> uh, the modern young man has less of the hormone than men of decades ago as well. Hmm. 27% less. Wow, that is steep. Right. Um, so they say that a 22-year-old man today, the average guy has the virility of a 67-year-old man in 2000. Wow. You know, so it's really fascinating when we look at society today and we start to do some correlations in thought and behavior and, and how we feel, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that gives that average guy about half the level of his father and uh, significantly less than his grandfather. He's just not the man hormone-wise than he was, than the men were of old. You know, and, and there's certainly unaccounted variables with these studies, uh, but the fact that men are losing t testosterone, their key strength is concerning mm -hmm. and experts are saying that uh, the trend doesn't appear to be related to age so what is the cause then that's the question well the, what is the cause uh, for for that steep of a decline and and the kinds of uh, effects that that would have over a, a wide variety of of behaviors and capabilities and even thinking uh is is quite concerning what what is the cause well, if you listen to scientists, they say it's it's just a, a complicated scenario because of all the sheer factors that could come into play. But there are obvious cases that stand out in today's modern society. We can look at our dietary patterns, which have changed substantially over the 20th century. Um, foods are now processed and prepackaged and unhealthy. Uh, they can contain a lot of synthetic estrogen, like DDT, mm. BPA, agricultural poisons, and and various chemicals in just in a mass production of food and, and consumer products. We're touching and, and ingesting stuff. And you can go on an environmental working group uh, and, and they can tell you all these chemicals that impact our testosterone. And, you know, nutritional science has also aired badly with dietary fat and the elevated cholesterol theory because fat is so important to testosterone production. Mm. Uh, Low-fat diets, which we've been told to eat for forever now, decrease men's testosterone by 10 to 15%. Mm -hmm. We should not be doing that. And ironically, when we take statins um, to lower that cholesterol level, that again drops testosterone. So because they're correlated. So if you drop, if you lower one, if you lower cholesterol, you lower testosterone. So getting people to lower their fat intake and taking statin medicines, it's just a double hit, really. Mm -hmm. um, another problem is burning the midnight oil. I mean, who doesn't do that, right? Just, they showed that just eight days of five and a half hours of sleep per night dropped testosterone by, again, by 10 to 15% mm -hmm. on average. So sleep is really important because during the, the deeper stages of that restorative sleep, it, there's reparative actions that take place including the release of testosterone. It needs to happen when we're sleeping in large part and up to 70% of growth hormone, you know, what, what makes a, a large part of the man. 
And so unfortunately, we disrupt our sleep cycles with that famous 60-hour work week, um, long commutes home, restlessness at night. You know, it just, it doesn't give us that restful sleep. Uh, exercise is just a great antidote to all of this, as we know. Hmm. Um, but it just has to be the right type of intensity of exercise, right? You have to have a bodily stress as a protective mechanism to release that testosterone. So you have to have an activity load that's pretty intense and consistent to bring up um, stable elevations in, in testosterone that leads your body to become stronger and, and more muscular. Uh, we're not talking this bodybuilder thing. We're just saying muscle. You know, we all need muscle. So exercises that stress multiple muscle groups are best when you exercise with high intensity endurance like weight or cardio uh, or resistance training of some sort. And again, that has a 10 to 25% T level increase. T level is testosterone increase. Hmm. So, and then of course, uh, the, the big one today is how many people are on pharmaceutical drugs? I mean, 66% of Americans right now are on pharmaceuticals. And, and again, uh, another study showed that many drugs bind to a protein in the body called uh, serum albumin, which is the same, uh, in the same way as testosterone. So, and they compete for transport in the bloodstream and, and that lowers and that wins out with, with the, the, the drugs and that lowers the amount of testosterone in the body. So the more drugs you're on, the, the lower the chance of your testosterone being. So this is not a good thing either. And there's likely more causes. I mean, I, I could probably sit here and give you hundreds of causes, mm -hmm. likely causes, but the, in, the, in the end, our modern lifestyle is just increasing just about every form of acute, chronic, physical, and mental illness mm -hmm. due to, in men, due to lack of testosterone. Um, and, and that's just a fact, given all the studies. So there's a, a lot of uh, services out there um, talking about how to uh, increase testosterone levels and, um, and to improve uh, this, this deficiency in men. What's the, what are the typical approaches that uh, the medical community is taking to address this issue? Right. So instead of a natural way to, to look at it, they, they take what's called the testosterone replacement therapy. And they give you small doses of testosterone. And really, that's for those people who are below 300 nanogram per deciliter. Like, you know, that should be only for them, given um, if you're going to go the medical route, uh, because that's really low. Uh, but now they're giving it to young people. They're giving it for any excuse out there, you know, and. You know, there's a lot of things, as we said, that can dim the fire inside of a middle-aged man. But turning to testosterone replacement prescription just seems to be an easier choice, like as a sort of a pill, than exercising or or, or eating right. You know, beginning in the 1990s, this stuff was unheard of, probably, uh, or, or uh, you know, practically. And today, it's like a five billion dollar annual thing. Oh, wow! And it's getting bigger and bigger. So. And what they do is they give you an injection or a gel patch or, um, or skin gels, and, and it just boosts your energy, your libido, and your muscle size. So it's not the answer. That's why I'm saying it's just a biochemical problem that, that can be taken care of naturally instead of TRT. So it seems like there's a correlation between this drop in T levels and what's happening in society where you see confusion over masculinity confusion over the man's role in society it's probably difficult to say what's the cause and what's the effect but there certainly seems to be 
a strong correlation. Yeah, and, and this is the the topic that really fascinated me. You know, we've all heard the term toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. right? But testosterone is a hormone. It's not a toxin, <laughs> you know, as many postulate today. It's just a term they throw on. There's no such thing as toxic masculinity. It's just a term that everybody uses. Testosterone is a, um, simply put, it's a chemical vehicle that travels through a man's body and a woman's and it delivers messages that, that cause changes in proper function in the body. It's a natural thing. So men's bodies are complicated and scientists are just finding out more about them all the time. Um, but now they're saying there's a strong correlation between elevated testosterone levels and aggression and dominance. You know, as if um, proper education, thought and behavior have become irrelevant. So these left-wing organizations, they cause, uh, you know, they've established this doctrine of evil, the evil of testosterone, and there's this debate now on the uh, male masculinity in society. And millennial men are so neutered today, you know, in male hormones, they report feeling pressured to, to, to project this traditional image of manhood, uh, family caregivers or breadwinners, protectors, educators. They have trouble seeing themselves as that. So that desire is on a downward spiral because testosterone is a major influence on masculine behaviors. And, you know, then the question is, how do they see themselves? Well, according to a survey out there, government survey, so 30% of the 18 to 29-year-old age bracket chose completely masculine um, only. And the other 70% in this survey chose uh, they felt more feminine. 70%. Yeah. And that's compared to 65% of men over 65. So this younger generation, something's happening, you know. Yeah. They don't have a purpose to their masculinity. Right. They're, they're relinquishing their, their manly duties in favor of the idea that uh, patriarchy triggers females because it's a source of women's suffering. And some nonsense like that that's going on out there. You know, and but responsible fatherhood should be a prerequisite for developing into a man. You know, studies now say that fatherhood lowers testosterone. I was floored by that. This is just, again, just a misguided attempt at destroying family structure, you know, with a masculine man. A masculine man and a father can have high testosterone, too. There's just this whole convergence of studies that that seem to want to destroy uh, what a man is about. You know, and women want this kindler, gentler man in touch with his feelings. But by labeling testosterone toxic, they've created this masculinity disinformation campaign <laughs> that has left men effeminate, weak, and dysfunctional, and, and a lot of them are mutilating their bodies. They're mimicking women. Mm-hmm. And it, it's bad news for society. Well, you mentioned exercise being a, a way to uh, rectify this problem. Any other prescriptions that would help to boost a man's testosterone naturally? Absolutely. Um, you know, what what a man needs is a positive change, and the secret isn't anything new. Uh, it's a healthy lifestyle. Um, men who don't exercise are weaker, especially as they age. So one of the best things to do, um, we've discussed exercise already. Um, they can also do intermittent fasting, which alongside exercise, and listen to this, can boost in testosterone by 400%. 400? 400. I was floored by this. Uh, if you eat at noon, 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., and then nothing until noon the next day, 
that allows your organs, especially your liver, to rest and balance the hormones. And so you also might want to lose some weight. That helps greatly. Clean up your diet. Eat lots of healthy fats. Fats are important. Healthy fats. Twenty、uh, to thirty minutes of sun daily. Plenty of sleep and minimize stress. So, in other words,、um, follow a lifestyle that's conducive to good health, and your natural testosterone will stay topped up for life. All right, good stuff. We've been talking with personal trainer and holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian about testosterone and how to boost it naturally. He's writing an article about this that should appear soon on thetrumpet.com. Go check it out. Thanks so much. It's good to talk to you, Jorg. Great to be here. It's time for today's last word. For several years now, I've had an opportunity each spring to train a group of college students to run a marathon. Now, even the training is very rewarding, but actually running in an event like that is quite exhilarating. Doing something challenging with thousands of other people, and one benefit of doing that is. It shows you the value of having a goal. You sign up, you put your money on the line, and then you train. You have this date marked on your calendar, and you're looking forward to this this event. And it's tough, but having a vision of what you're preparing for helps a lot. And in the end, it it really is worth it. And you make a lot more progress than you would have had you not set that goal for yourself. In his book, The Seven Laws of Success, Herbert W. Armstrong wrote, "Do you know that most people go on through life without any goal at all? Most people never think of having any purpose in life. They're not going anywhere in particular. That's what happens when we don't set goals. We just don't go anywhere." And Mr. Armstrong emphasizes the importance of setting the right goal, aiming high. What goals do you have in your life? We should be setting goals if we're to become better people. Mr. Armstrong writes: the first law of success is to fix the right goal, not any goal. One could set a goal in which he had little or no interest and drift into inaction. The right goal will arouse ambition. Ambition is more than mere desire; it is desire plus incentive, determination, will to achieve the desire. The right goal will be so intensely desired that it will excite vigorous and determined effort. We want to be. Excited about life and about the opportunities that we have in store. We don't. We want to be looking ahead at the the opportunities that lie before us. And God gives us the greatest goal of all. He He says, "Become you perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect." That's Jesus Christ speaking in Matthew five and verse forty eight. God aims high. He has universe sized goals, and and the He holds Himself to the highest standards. And he wants us aiming high, and we need God setting that bar for us because our human nature always tends to slacken and degenerate. We want to take it easy. We get comfortable. We get complacent. We don't like challenges and hard things. We want to just do the minimum and scrape by. And in the world around us, there are plenty of things that suck us in and pull us off our goals. So that's a tendency we all have to fight. And God says, aim high, strive for perfection. So think about what sort of goals you can set in your life, and how you might develop 
and progress over these next few months. Think about what sort of spiritual goals you might set. Think about your prayer life. You know, there are three areas that we can evaluate and set some goals in. The time that we spend in prayer, maybe it's good for you to increase the amount of prayer that you do each day or set a goal to end each day with 10 minutes of prayer. The content of our prayers need to always become more mature and unselfish and detailed. Maybe you can set a goal to pray for 10 people a day, something like that. And also think about the fervency of your prayers. Maybe really praying more out loud or spending 10 minutes each day focused, heartfelt praise for God, thanks for God. Think of your daily Bible study. You might set a goal to journal your study or to make a list of booklets that you want to study. What goals can you set that will help you grow spiritually over the next few months? Think about goals you might have in your work or in your personal development. These are really crucial aspects of our life, and we want to make sure that what we're doing is putting us on the path to success. What does the approach that you take toward your work say about your character? And what is it doing to your character? Are you strengthening your character by the approach that you're taking? Do you need to set goals with your personal organization? Maybe having a, a daily schedule that you're really sticking to so that you're using your time properly. If you're not setting goals with your schedule, then you're probably wasting a lot more time than you realize. You might set a goal to increase the duration that you can focus on something without distraction, up to 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour. You might prioritize finishing your hardest work first uh, in whatever work block you have before you. What about having goals for your physical health to get seven hours of sleep a night or eight or more if that's what you need to eliminate sugar from your diet for two weeks or a month or three months what about running a half marathon or a full marathon these really are excellent goals to set for yourself in daniel 9 and verse 2 it says that in the first year of his reign i daniel understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the eternal came to jeremiah the prophet this man really studied hard Gerald Flurry's booklet, Daniel Unsealed at Last, says, Daniel understood by books. He studied hard and was brilliant because of it. God wants us to bear down like Daniel and understand what these prophecies are all about. That means putting in diligent, earnest study. God is making us study hard to really get it. The next verse, verse 3, says, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So he set his face. He turned his attention wholly to God into seeking God. And because of that, God was able to reveal awesome things to him. You see in the next chapter, Daniel 10, he fasted for three weeks. He had real determination and drive to follow through with what he knew that he should do. And after those weeks, he was visited by Gabriel, the archangel, who commended him for setting his heart to understand. Gerald Flurry once commented how Daniel set his will to seek God, setting his will and doing what God wanted. He said it does require that a person really set their will. 
that setting your will is really the key to success in anything. If you set your will to do it, you're going to do it. You're going to get a lot done because you set your will. He said, if you fail to keep a resolution or what you decided to do and what you should do, it is simply a failure of setting your will or a failure to continue in the will you had set. So anytime we fail, it's really in that area. We need to learn that once we set our will, that's it. It can't be anything else. Of course, we need God's help, and ultimately, He's the one who converts us. We can't be saved by human effort. But when we know what we should do, we have to drive ourselves to do it if we expect God to help us. That's crucial for everything that we're talking about. Go to God for help, then discipline yourself to follow through with what you decide to do. I've thrown a lot of ideas out there. It's not good to have 20 goals all at once. You might start with one or maybe two or three at the most. Make progress on those. Complete those before you bite off any more. But do set goals. Aim high. As Paul said in Philippians 3, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul had goals. He wasn't aimless. He was focused on where he was going. He fixed the right goal. He didn't let anything hold him back. He strained forward and pressed on toward that goal. Sit down, think it through, decide on one or two or three goals to start. Write goals that really get your ambition fired up and press on toward the prize. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Mihailo Zekic, Richard Palmer, and Jorg Mardian. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Winston Churchill. To improve is to change. To be perfect is to change often. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.